Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 42. Last week, I covered the history of Damascus through the end of the Roman era. If you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up the history of Damascus at the beginning of the Islamic era. So let's get started. The first known contact between the Islamic world and Damascus occurred when Muhammad sent an emissary, namely Shia bin Wahhab, to the king of Damascus, Paris bin Ghassani, in the 7th century. Most sources believe this occurred in the year 628, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Wahhab was carrying a letter from Muhammad that read, Peace be upon him who follows true guidance. Be informed that my religion shall prevail everywhere. You should accept Islam, and whatever under your command shall remain yours. End quote. More on that treaty later, perhaps in a much later episode. Not too long after that came the Rashadun Caliphate, which occurred early in the history of Islam. It began after Muhammad's death in 632 AD. At its strongest, the Caliphate controlled an empire from the Arabian Peninsula to the Levant, to the Caucasus in the north, also in North Africa from Egypt to present-day Tunisia in the west, and from the Iranian Plateau to Central Asia in the east. Which, I realize, is a geographic area that is really difficult to envision, so I'll post a map on the podcast Facebook page. And for the uninitiated, and we all were there at one time, a caliphate is simply the area ruled by a caliph. In April 634, the Islamic army attacked Damascus, but was thwarted. The victory was short-lived as the city fell in September of the same year. When Damascus fell to the Arab Muslims, the Byzantines were understandably distressed that they had lost what was considered to be their most significant city in the Near East. Also, unsurprisingly, they resolved to fight the usurpers and to try to win Damascus back. The Byzantines, led by Emperor Heraclius, mustered an army with superior numbers when compared to the Rashidun. They marched into southern Syria during the spring of 636 AD, and then Khalid ibn Alawid's forces withdrew from Damascus. But they were only doing so to prepare for the next battle. In August of the same year, The two sides converged along the Yarmouk River, a tributary of the Jordan River, located on the present border of Syria, Jordan, and Israel. It was here that they fought, culminating in a decisive Muslim victory. The victory solidified Muslim rule in Syria and Palestine. But, even while controlled by the Arab Muslims, the population of the city of Damascus remained predominantly Christian. More specifically, what we would consider now to be Eastern Orthodox. But there was a growing community of Muslims who primarily immigrated from Mecca, Medina, and the Syrian desert. It is worth noting that at the time, researchers believed that the majority of Arabs were either pagans or Christians. Damascus itself was predominantly Aramaic. At the time, the city was governed by one Mu'awiyah I, and the city was designated as the capital of Islamic Syria. After the death of Caliph Ali in 661, Mu'awiyah was then chosen as the Caliph to expand the Islamic Empire. As a note, the Caliph was the chief Muslim civil and religious leader, regarded as the successor to Muhammad. Not the best comparison, but somewhat similar to the Pope. That Mu'awiyah was chosen is symbolic of the growing importance of Syria to the Islamic world. 
Because of the considerable assets held by Muawiyah's family, known as the Umayyads, he designated Damascus as the capital of the entire caliphate. That Damascus was also a traditional economic and social center and home to several Christian Arab tribes did not hurt either. Muawiyah died in either April or May 680, and the next few years saw a succession of various caliphs. In 685, an Islamic coinage system was introduced and all of the surplus revenue of the caliph's provinces were forwarded to the treasury of Damascus. Of course, with that money came the wealth and Damascus prospered. It was during this period that Arabic was established as the official language in the city. Now this gave the Muslim minority of the city an advantage over the Aramaic-speaking Christians in obtaining government positions. In 706, Caliph al-Walid began construction of the Grand Mosque of Damascus, also known as the Umayyad Mosque. The building was constructed on the site of the Christian Cathedral of St. John. Now to the credit of the Muslims, they maintained the building's dedication to John the Baptist. But it is worth noting that the Quran names 25 prophets, and the one it names as John is one and the same as John the Baptist. Soon after the mosque was completed in 715, al-Walid died. He was succeeded by a rapid succession of caliphs whose names I won't bother you with. But with each succession, the political, religious, and economic prominence of Damascus was slowly slipping away. By 743, the Caliph of the Umayyads spread from Spain to India, but control over this vast area was declining, primarily as a result of pervasive revolts. Then, during the reign of Mauron II in 744, the capital of the empire was moved to Haran, a city north of Damascus and presently in Turkey, but quite literally a stone's throw from the Syrian border. Internal strife had always been present with Islam, almost from its beginning. Having previously defeated the Umayyads, the Abbasids in 750 conquered Damascus. With this, the capital of the Islamic Empire moved to Baghdad and Damascus slipped even further in prestige. Soon in the reign of the Abbasids, the city of Damascus was embroiled in small revolts. Nothing terribly organized, though. The Abbasids ruled with an iron fist, especially pertinent considering this was well after the Iron Age. The executioners quickly made work of all the prominent Umayyads. Also, the government was reorganized with the previous administration's bureaucrats being cast out. The military dismissed anyone who previously had had authority, at least ones lucky enough to survive. And even the dead did not escape, as the Umayyad family cemetery was vandalized. As had been tradition in that part of the world, the city walls were torn down. That, along with the economic impact of the capital move, relegated Damascus into nothing more than a lowly provincial town. Essentially, it vanished from written records for about the next century. Then, in 811, a strong rebellion was organized in Damascus by distant relatives of the Umayyads. But it did not take long for the Abbasids to quell the uprising. In the 9th century, the Abbasids appointed a Turk, namely Amab ibn Tulun, as governor of the region. Before long, he was leading a revolt against his superiors and conquered Syria, including Damascus, in 879. Trying to show some respect for the previous Umayyad rulers and also to gain allies, he erected a shrine on the site of Muayyad's grave in Damascus, but his dynasty's rule was somewhat short, lasting only 27 years. Next came the Shia Quarmatians, 
They too were not long for Damascus, as their ambitions were greater than their ability to control. They territorially overextended themselves, primarily due to their inability to control the vast amount of land they occupied. The Cormatans withdrew from Damascus. They were followed by a new family, the Ikshidids, who seized upon the power vacuum and controlled Damascus. The Ikshidids ensured that Damascus was independent from the Arab Hamidid dynasty based in Aleppo. They also managed to forestall the Abbasids, at least until 967. In fact, the latter half of the 10th century was a period of volatility, with Carmentan assaults in 968, a Byzantine raid in 970, coupled with mounting tension from the Fatimids in the south and Hamidids in the north. It was the Shia Fatimids who eventually gained control in 970, but life under Shia control was hardly tolerable for the Sunnis who made up most of the city's Islamic population. In fact, the Sunnis frequently revolt. Once again, it was a Turk, this time by the name of Alptekin, who pushed the Fatimids out. He then flexed his diplomatic muscles and averted a Byzantine bid to annex the city. The Fatimids were not done though. In 977, led by Caliph al-Aziz, regained control of Damascus, once again repressing the Sunnis. As a testament to the era, an Arab geographer, al-Muqadisid, visited Damascus in 985, noting that the architecture and infrastructure of the city was, in his words, well, in his words after translation into my language. Anyway, the architecture and infrastructure were magnificent, but living conditions were deplorable. While under brief rule of Al-Aziz, Damascus experienced a brief period of stability, meaning about 20 years. Then, in 998, hundreds of Damascus's residents were arrested and then executed by Al-Aziz for incitement. Then there was the curious case of Caliph Al-Hakim. I'll dive into this rabbit hole, and not because it is exactly related to the topic at hand, but more because it gives insight into how the Islamic Kingdom was governed at the time. Al-Hakim was born in 985 in what is now Egypt. His father was Caliph Al-Aziz, who had two consorts. One was known only by her title, which I'll spare you from my derelict pronunciation. But it is known that she was a Melkite Christian, whose two brothers were patriarchs of the Melkite Church. Other sources claim that one of her brothers or perhaps her father, was sent by Al-Aziz as an ambassador to Sicily. In my mind, that would be a plum assignment. By the way, a Melkite Christian is generally understood to be an Arabic-speaking sect loosely organized in the Near East. Later, after this time period, and after the so-called East-West split, they would generally align with the Western Church. She, meaning the first consort whom shall not be named, is thought to be the mother of Shatik al-Maluk, considered one of the most famous women in Islamic history. Sit al-Maluk is believed to have had a tumultuous relationship with her half-brother al-Hakim, and the future leader of the Caliphate. In fact, she may have had him. Oh wait, that's a spoiler. Some writers, even one William of Tyre, who himself was a notable chronicler of the Crusades, claimed that she who shall not be named was also the mother of the Caliph al-Hakim. But most historians disagree with this assertion. 
William of Tyre went as far as claiming the Al-Hakim's destruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem in 1009 was due to his desire to disprove that he was the Christian son of a Christian woman. Muslim historian Al-Musa Bahi thought differently. He claimed that in 981, Al-Hakim's Muslim mother sought the aid of an imprisoned Islamic philosopher named Ibn al-Washa. She asked him to pray for her son who was ailing. The prisoner inscribed the entire Quran on the interior of a bowl and instructed her to wash Al-Hakim with water from the bowl. When Al-Hakim recovered, she demanded that the prisoner be released. Her request was granted, and the wise man, along with his associates, were set free. Either way, while who was actually his mother may be lost for the ages, he was heir to the throne. In 996, Al-Hakim's father, Caliph Al-Haziz, was en route to Syria, which at the time was controlled by the Fatimids. Syria was also facing pressure from the Byzantines. While on the trip, the Caliph was stricken with an illness. While he was in Bilbius, in northeastern Egypt, he laid bedridden there for several days, attempting a recovery. It was recorded that his illness was in symptom by stone with pains in the bowels. Now this is a curious recording, and not for the obvious reasons, but more for that we have a description of his pain, where he was holed up, and more details on his trip, but no recording of who was his son's mother, sign of the times. Apparently, the illness was severe enough for the Caliph to think he was dying. He charged two associates with ensuring his 11-year-old son was cared for. He then spoke to his son, who later recounted the words of his father, quoting, I found him with nothing on his body but rags and bandages. I kissed him, and he pressed me to his bosom, exclaiming, How I grieve for thee, beloved of my heart. And tears flowed from his eyes. He then said, Go, my master, and play, for I am well. I obeyed and began to amuse myself with sports, such as are usual with boys. And soon after, God took him to himself. Barjawan, who was his treasurer, then hastened me, and seeing me on top of a sycamore tree, exclaimed, Come down, my boy. May God protect you and us all. When I descended, he placed on my head the turban adorned with jewels, kissed the ground before me, and said, Hail to the commander of the faithful, with the mercy of God and his blessing. He then led me out in that attire and showed me to all the people who kissed the ground before me and saluted me with the title of Caliph. The next day, the newly crowned Caliph and his entourage traveled from Bilbays to Cairo. At the front was a camel carrying the body of his dead father, his feet protruding from the burial shroud. They arrived just prior to the evening prayer and his father was buried the next day next to the tomb of his predecessor. Al-Hakim was sworn in by what has been called the white eunuch whom Al-Haziz had appointed as a tutor. To be clear, up until that point, it had been somewhat unclear who exactly would inherit his father's position. And this successful transfer of power was a demonstration of the stability of the Fatimid dynasty. Despite this, the Kutumim Berbers seized the opportunity to recover their formerly dominant position in the area. Backing up a bit, the Berbers' control had waned under Al-Hazid due to the arrival of conscripted Turkish and Dalamite troops from the Islamic north and east. 
The Berbers then convinced the new and still young Al-Hakim to dismiss his Christian advisor, Ibn Nasturis, who was quickly executed. They also had the young ruler appoint their leader, Ibn Ammar, to head the government. Ibn Ammar's rule quickly descended into a Berber tyranny. As you would expect with a new administration, especially one from a party that had been forced out of power, he immediately began staffing the government with his fellow Berbers. The political appointees raided the treasury. It should not have to be said, but I'll do it anyway. The displaced government, along with much of the citizenry, were alarmed. The Barjwan, essentially a palace official, contacted the Fatimid governor of Damascus, a Turk named Manjudakin, and invited him to bring his forces to Egypt and depose Ibn Ammar. Manjudakin accepted the invitation, but was defeated by Ibn Ammar's troops. Then Manjudakin was taken prisoner. Well, so much for that plan. Barjawan then reached out in the opposite compass direction, this time to Tripoli. The former governor of that city was a Kutuma leader named Yahish ibn Samsam, who ibn Falah had previously dismissed and replaced with his own brother. Ibn Samsam and Barjawan then assembled a group of other dissatisfied political and military leaders and fomented an uprising in Cairo in October 997. Ibn Ammar fled before he was caught, and Barjawan replaced him as the political leader. Think of this as an ancient coup. Barjawan truly sought to unify the kingdom, and to that end he pardoned Ibn Ammar and even restored his monthly salary of 500 gold dinars. Of course, not everyone can be happy, and less than three years after assuming power, Barjawan was murdered. And with that, at the age of 15, Caliph al-Hakim assumed the reins of the government. One of his first acts was to begin a purge of the Fatimid elites. During the purge, Ibn Ammar, along with many of his Berber compatriots and many of the Katuma leaders were summarily executed. To ensure that his own power had staying power, Hakim limited the authority in terms of office of his subordinates and advisors. But hey, at least they got to live. There were many years of intrigue and plays for power which I'm skipping over because they did not impact Damascus. I may, and that's may, cover them later when I discuss the history after the New Testament, perhaps coinciding with the Crusades. A few curious tidbits, though. Hakim's Syrian policy is historically, at least, considered to be successful, as he managed to extend the Fatimid rule as far as Aleppo. He also maintained diplomatic relations between the Fatimid Empire and many different countries. For example, he used his adept diplomacy to establish a friendly relationship with the Byzantine Empire, which at the time sought to expand. But to me at least, the most surprising diplomatic effort was to the east, the far, far east, all the way to the Song Dynasty in China. An Egyptian sea captain named Damiet traveled to a Buddhist site of pilgrimage in Shandong, generally believed to have occurred in the year 1008 AD. During this mission, the captain presented the Chinese emperor Zingzong of Song with gifts from Al-Hakim. The mission re-established diplomatic relations between Egypt and China that had been lost during the collapse of the Tang Dynasty in 907, some 100 years earlier. As young Al-Hakim matured and came into what would be the final years of his reign, 
He withdrew from public life, attended prayer services less, and generally eschewed the worldly pleasures of a reigning monarch. Then, on the night of February 12, 1021, when he was 36 years old, Al-Hakim left for one of his regular night hikes to the Al-Mukatam hills outside of Cairo to never be seen alive or dead again. A search recovered only his donkey and blood-stained garments. His disappearance has remained a mystery for almost a thousand years. Remember his half-sister, Sit al-Maluk, with whom he had a tumultuous relationship? She was the prime suspect, but nothing ever became of that. In fact, al-Hakim was succeeded by his young son, Ali az-Sahir, under the regency of his half-sister, Sit al-Maluk. Motive? Check. Al-Zahir was 16 years old at the time. Three years after Al-Hakim's mysterious disappearance and his teenage son's rise to power, specifically in 1029, the various Arab tribes of southern Syria got together and staged a massive rebellion against the Fatimids. It's becoming a frequent theme that these upstart rebellions are rarely successful. And of course, as such, they too were defeated by the Fatimids this time by the Turkish governor of Syria and Palestine, Anush Takin al-Dizabari. The victory gave the Fatimids control over all of Syria. Now what happened next is one of those interesting times in history where even when you win, you lose. The governor gained control over so much area that his bosses thought he was too powerful. Dizabari was rewarded by being exiled to Aleppo where he died in 1041. Gee, thanks guys. And from 1041 to 1063, there are no known records of Damascus's history. As an outpost for the Fatimid Caliphate, Damascus had suffered and declined both economically and demographically. And with that is this week's episode. Next week, I'll wrap up the history of Damascus. You don't want to miss it. So, like I often do, I got a little off-topic, meandering my way all the way through the life of Al-Hakim, but I think I was successful in tying it back to the original topic. Despite this, my hope is that you'll go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. And for those of you that have, you have made my day numerous times. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. You'll be joining the over 2,000 people who already have. And to me, that's an absolutely astounding number. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.